0: If you're new to studying Alzheimer's disease, or just starting to read studies about the condition, you'll soon come to find that the majority of articles start out something like this. In the United States, 5.8 million older adults suffer from Alzheimer's disease, and the number is expected to grow to 14 million by 2050. Dramatic reading, very much intended. Then the article will go on to talk about why their study is so important, or if it's in a grant proposal, why their work should be funded. The study where these statistics come from was published in 2013 in the journal Neurology. At the time of recording this podcast, the paper had been cited over 2,400 times in other research articles. For researchers, The number of citations is sort of analogous to performance statistics in a sports competition. Say for a running back in football, it's like the total number of yards in a specific game. In this case, the study being the game, but I digress. The altmetric score, that's a composite measure of media attention, for this article is over 600. That places it in the top 5% of all scientific articles. And it's been the focus of more than 60 news articles. Today, we're going to dig into the paper that is most often cited in the first sentence of Alzheimer's studies. We'll get into what exactly the researchers did, the strengths and limitations, discuss what makes some articles so highly cited, and others, not so much. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Today we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Weave. Dr. Weave is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health. She's an epidemiologist whose research focuses on two areas of inquiry. One, factors related to aging, and two, health effects of exposure to environmental toxicants. Dr. Weave has an impressive track record as an investigator on numerous prestigious grants from the National Institutes of Health. Small World, Dr. Weave was the first author on the paper we discussed with Sarah Adar on this podcast earlier in the season, the one on community noise and cognitive function. She's here today, though, to talk with us about her work on what is currently one of the most cited papers on Alzheimer's disease. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh,
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Weave is the second author on the paper titled Alzheimer's Disease in the United States 2010 to 2050 estimated using the 2010 census. Being an epidemiologist, we thought Jennifer would be the perfect person to talk about the details of the study. Further, given her success, a great person to help us try to answer what makes a paper citable. Before we jump into the discussion, just a little bit about the study. The study set out to make prevalence estimates for Alzheimer's disease. Overall, I would say it's a straightforward read. After seeing so many papers it, I was actually surprised that it's fairly short in length. The authors used a combination of data sources to forecast the number of older adults with Alzheimer's disease from 2010 out to 2050. The data sources used included the Chicago Health and Aging Project and the 2010 U.S. Census. So just to start things off, Jennifer, when you were working on the study, did you at all anticipate the effect it would have on the research community?
2: You know, yes and no. Here, you know, we weren't going to go about trying to identify a cause of dementia or a treatment for it. And and really, that's what people are very interested in, because this is such a devastating condition. We were aiming for something more fundamental. So how many people have Alzheimer's, dementia now? And back then, now was 2010, (laughs) Uh, which seems like another world. And how many will have it in the future and this seems like a fairly a fairly basic aspect of dementia, right? I mean, it doesn't seem as enthralling as an investigation of, say, a new effective treatment for, for Alzheimer's disease or some highly effective way to prevent it. Um, and yet, of course, kind of as you were getting at in your introduction, knowing how many people have Alzheimer's dementia, or at least knowing approximately how many do, uh, helps us as scientists and also as funders of science to prioritize what we have And it also helps us as a society plan. Um, it's hard to argue that Alzheimer's disease merits a certain kind of research attention if you don't really know how many people have it, if you don't even have a sense of it. And we already know it's a devastating condition though. Um, it's also hard to make decisions about how to allocate resources to people who have dementia and the people who care for them. And I, by care, caring for them, I mean, family members, but also um, professional, caregivers, like physicians and nurses and PAs and so on. So when we started this study about 10 years ago, the most cited estimates of Alzheimer's dementia prevalence were from a paper that was published in 2003. And this paper projected the experience of a specific well-studied cohort um, onto the U.S. population. And that that study was based on uh, census data from 2000. And so that meant, for example, that the expected number of older adults in the United States with Alzheimer's, dementia in the year 2030 was based on data from at least three decades prior. That's old. I mean, if our prediction game is good, it shouldn't matter. But it just starts to feel a little wobbly the further into the future we go. So, that in essence was the goal, and I, I realize now in hindsight, I mean, I wasn't that naive about about the importance of of providing a citation for the first sentence of many papers? <laughs>
0: but but in it wasn't fact, It was your goal? <laughs> <laughs> it
2: was not a goal, and um, you know, every house has a found, every home has a foundation, and essentially, this is the foundation for many papers, and um, and so I mean, it's, it is obviously a privilege to be uh, to have this work cited so often and to have it viewed. Uh, with the respect that it's received, um, in fact, as my role as the second author, in fact, was not to conduct the analysis. Actually, it was it was to write the paper, and so in that position, um, I became even more intimate with the the procedures for generating these estimates. I mean, when you're doing it, of course, you know it. But when you have to explain it, <laughs> that is another level. So um, so it, it is definitely a nice match or, or a nice concordance between the work and care that went into this and the attention it is received. And I know that's not true for many, many papers.
0: There, there is beauty in doing something that needs to be done well, I think. You know, I mean, sometimes scientists think that they've got to come up with some super novel association or something. But sometimes yeah. we just need the numbers. And that's one of the things I really appreciate this article.
1: That was a great segue into the next question. So the on the surface, it seems like um, coming up with prevalence estimates would be a pretty straightforward thing to do. And yet, if you read the methods of this paper, um, it's... It's not so straightforward, and so you were just were explaining that you were the person who really had to write this. So, can you just explain, um, give us like an overview of some of the, the nuts and bolts and how of how you actually came up with these numbers?
2: Yeah. Okay. So first, um, let's just have a little recap of what we mean by prevalence. So prevalence, it's kind of two things, but they're they're very related to each other. So so we talk about prevalent cases or prevalent dementia as. The number of people who have Alzheimer's disease at a given time, and usually for uh, Alzheimer's dementia, we speak of um, the number of cases on average for a specific year. And uh, so if we say the prevalence is 5.1 million, what we were saying is 5.1 million people have Alzheimer's dementia for, say, 2010. We can also talk about prevalence in terms of proportions. And basically, all we're doing there is we're taking that first number that I described, the prevalent number of cases, and dividing it by the total population. So, for example, if we're interested in, in the prevalence proportion of Alzheimer's dementia in, say, the 85-plus population, we take the number of cases and divide it by the number of people who are 85 or older. So um, so both of those things have value, and, um, and as you can tell, they are very closely related. So let's start about like how many, well, actually let's start where many people start, which is why not just count up the number of people whose medical records show that they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia? Like, why don't we just do that? It can't be that complicated. And this is similar to the approaches that we use for conditions, like some cancers, or even a neurologic condition like ALS. And with conditions that are severe or seem to develop suddenly are definitely unusual or even conditions for which we screen people on a regular basis, most of these folks end up at the doctor's office. With Alzheimer's dementia, the situation is quite different. Historically, dementia was believed to be a normal part of aging. Oh, just having a little deficit there? Well, you're old. What did you expect? And um, on top of that, there was and still is stigma around having this diagnosis. And finally, even though there are ways that folks with dementia can manage and adapt to their symptoms, there's no treatment that truly alters the course of the clinical disease. So, all of these factors, plus the ones I haven't even mentioned, um, mean that Alzheimer's dementia is often di- not diagnosed. And when it is diagnosed, it may have been around for quite a while. Um, And so if we use medical records, we're going to get the wrong number. And um, and this is true even in societies where everyone has medical insurance. I mean, technically in the US, everyone 65 and older has it too, Um, but it doesn't really seem to matter. And um, in terms of how far off we might be if we use claims, insurance claims, or if we use medical records... um, Maybe fifteen percent, but maybe more. It just depends. Um, we're just not going to get it right. So, so one way around this is to take the diagnoses into our own hands. And so, what if we worked with a sample of older adults and evaluated them ourselves? Um, this evaluation would be, would be the same for everyone. So we're not going to depend on everyone, you know, all physicians in the community, diagnosing people in the same way. We're going to do it ourselves, or we're going to do it the same way for everyone. And that means it won't depend on having a doctor or going to one. It would also occur, again, in our fantasy situation on a regular basis. So we could identify people who have Alzheimer's, dementia, and people who newly develop it. So if we're regularly evaluating people, we can catch them as they're developing it. And that means that we're not going to have so many diagnoses that are late in the course of the disease. So, of course, this attention to the consistency of the diagnostic process and the regularity of evaluation is why we can't evaluate the entire population of U.S. adults. (laughs) We're just we just do not have the funds for that. So. So to get around that, we could sample older adults. And knowing things about our sample, we could then use that information to project to the US population. And that's what we did. So we, um, it, well, in our case, we use participants from the Chicago Health and Aging Project, and uh, we used information on them to project to the United States.
1: One quick follow-up is, mm-hmm. um, so the title of the paper specifically is Alzheimer's dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, how specific is this estimate? And the clinical exam really is Alzheimer's dementia. And so other types of dementia we've heard about earlier, like dementia with Lewy bodies, your frontotemporal dementia, are, are those folks are not included in this estimate?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. This study used a definition of Alzheimer's dementia that could be considered Alzheimer's plus. So anyone who met the clinical criteria for Alzheimer's dementia, but also had symptoms of other dementias, was also counted as an Alzheimer's dementia case. And this was An insight of the principal investigator, Dr. Dennis Evans, Um, who came up with this this insight a long time ago before we have a lot of pathologic data to support it. That sort of approach has been supported now by what we see on pathology. Um, So in fact, if you counted all the people who have dementia in this particular cohort, the, the Dementias that are clearly not at all Alzheimer's, at least in terms of clinical presentation, account for like five or six percent of all dementia cases. So so what we're probably seeing, and I'm sorry, I don't actually have these numbers on me, is is a, a lot of mixed dementias and then um, what some people might c- consider pure Alzheimer's. But I'm <laughs> the longer I've been in this career, the less I believe in it. <laughs> pure right. Alzheimer's, right. or, or it's, it's not as common as we think.
1: Right. But so this is pretty, this would capture the vast majority of dementias perhaps except for a very small, small
0: percentage. Yes. I was going to ask like whether you'd feel comfortable in that first sentence being dementia in the United States, not just Alzheimer's dementia. Yeah. I,
2: you know, I would actually prefer, just to (laughs) (laughs) but, but it's sort of, I'm, I'm kind of adhering to the terminology that we used and, um, so uh, yeah, thank you, thank you again for asking that. I something I'd forgotten to take note of, and it was going to be one of those questions I hope you asked me, and you did.
0: So it sounds like you, you were taking into consideration people developing the condition and then mapping that to the <laughs> U.S. data. What about mortality data?
2: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about prevalence again. So the number of people who have any condition of interest, and let's just again stick with Alzheimer's dementia, is going to depend on two things. So think of it as where are the cases coming from? Well, they come from new, I mean, newly developed cases, and, um, but there's also kind of an, an I guess, an outbox. It's not really an outbox, but, but there's also cases leaving the population, and those are people who die. And so, in fact, what we estimated in the Chicago Health and Aging Project, which I will now call CHAP, um, what we estimated were two things, two major quantities. One was the incidence of Alzheimer's dementia, and the other was the relative rate of mortality among people who have Alzheimer's dementia. And so by relative, I mean, how much more rapidly did they die compared with people who didn't have the condition? And both of those two quantities, we estimated um, for combinations of four variables, age, sex, Race, meaning black, white, and education. So we had unique incidence rates and mortal, relative mortality rates for every combination of those four variables. And it is it was through that combination of incidence and and relative mortality that we estimated prevalence.
0: I, I was sort of having flashbacks to my MPH degree because we use this textbook uh, by Leon Leon Gordis. Have you seen this book? It's a yes, famous textbook. I am,
2: yes. Yeah.
0: And there's an it's image that he has of this flask to to describe prevalence. And he's used in each little ball in there is a person and he has people kind of developing the disease and then potentially leaving the population and it totally leaving the, the prevalence moment. pool. Uh, yeah, exactly.
2: I, it's funny because I was going to say prevalence pool and it just sounds so jovial compared with dementia <laughs> itself and just didn't feel like in the same sort of yeah. uh, tone family.
0: So you touched on this already, but in terms of the CHAP study, the Chicago Health and Aging Project, was there other things that we should know about that particular study in terms of the quality of the data or why you selected it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the Chicago Health and Aging Project involves nearly 11,000 older adults, by older adult I mean 65 and older, living in four adjacent neighborhoods in Chicago. And- Every three years, starting in 1993, participants underwent evaluations of their cognitive function and so on in their homes. So you can see how we are really aiming for the population experience. We're not asking anyone to come to the clinic. We are coming to them. And um, the other thing you should know about this population is that... uh, about 60% of the participants were Black. The remaining participants were White. And um, and participants were recruited into the study over time. And um, so for people who study children or even younger people, uh, we talk about the equivalent of being born uh, as being newly aged, which means you turn 65 and you are suddenly eligible to be in this study. And so, in fact, over time, uh, the... The investigators recruited more people into the study as they turned 65, so long as they lived in this neighborhood.
1: In the analysis, you stratify, or I guess stratify the analysis by age group. So you have 65 Mm -hmm. to 74, 75 Mm -hmm. to 84, 85 plus. Um, And when in figure one in this paper, you know, the the overall line is going up and then you see these interesting sort of shifts over time within those different age strata, um, which uh, has something to do with the aging of the baby boomer cohort. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about sort of the, the overlap of, um, risk of dementia by age. And then what happens as the baby boomers are aging at, to to help explain uh, what we're seeing with those different age groups?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so age is a part of two aspects of our results. So one which is going to be really familiar and which you touched on. Um, let's start a bit with the percentage of people who have Alzheimer's dementia. And so because age is such a strong force in determining risk, and we, we see risk increasing exponentially with older age, um, the older the age group, the larger the percentage who have Alzheimer's dementia. So that that we saw very, very clearly in our data. So, for example, For 2020, we projected that about 3% of those 65 to 74 have Alzheimer's dementia, as opposed to nearly 17% of those in the next age group, 75 to 84, and then 32% of those 85 and older. So no surprises there. So that's the one way age works. So basically, the older you are, the higher your risk for having dementia. I mean, there's mortality elements there, too. I'm not going to get into at the moment. Um, No. I will say these percentages moved around a little bit from year to year, and that starts to get it at, at this cohort effect. So it's not a lot. So, for example, you'll see that the percentage of uh, 65 to 70 year olds moves up and down over time. And part of that is that the, the Okay, now I'm going to start to sound really nerdy. The composition of the population within that age group changes too. And that's partially because of the aging of the baby boomers. So for example, 65 to 74 year olds, over time, as we get to about 2030, um, that group becomes older. I mean, there's still 65 to 74, but there are more people toward the 74 end. Sure. So, so we see those shifts that we see in the numbers uh, over time are because of the composition within aging cohort. And again, that is really fed by this aging of the baby boomer cohort. Um, and then the aging of the baby boomer cohort also affects the trends that you mentioned, the trends in the number of people who have Alzheimer's disease. Dementia. And so shortly, I I think the magic year is about 2040, it's kind of in there. So shortly before 2040, we projected that the number of 75 to 84 year olds with Alzheimer's dementia would level off. Like it's going up and then it levels off. But the number of 85 plus year olds with Alzheimer's dementia we projected it would continue to grow. And this is mainly because of the continued growth in the 85 plus population. And that is the baby boomer population, or that's that's the bulk of it. So really before 2040, we expected most persons with Alzheimer's disease to be 75 to 84. After 2040, we expect most of them to be 85 plus. And, um, and so this this image I have in my head, which again, just seems inappropriate, is like a snake that has swallowed a very large animal and the animal is just moving through. <laughs> and, and so we're seeing- Those are the baby this, rumors. <laughs> swallowed by a snake, yes.
0: (laughs) Uh, So for any epidemiologists that are like, you know, training, this is a great example. I mean, can you call this a birth cohort effect potentially? It is totally
2: a birth cohort effect, yes.
0: That's something that's so great to hear in reality, because often the examples in textbooks are like tuberculosis and, you know, strange things that we don't really (laughs) talk about anymore. It's funny, like, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because when I first, you know, looked at the study like a couple of years ago, I didn't think that much about it. I just kind of like did, looked at it quickly. And I was like, why are they stratifying? And until I read it more carefully, preparing for this interview, I was like, oh, that's exactly why they had to stratify these results, because it would be this artifact if you didn't do that. So it was a great explanation.
2: Yeah, um, it is. It is definitely a birth cohort effect. And I think I also am not like a spring chicken here. And I realized like I have to now explain to many of my students what the baby births <laughs> are. <was. laughs> like, OK, so there's this like war <laughs> <laughs> and then people came back. <laughs> and yeah, so so anyway, uh, I don't know if you'll need to add an explanation into this for any, any of the, the earlier career people.
0: <laughs> the focus of your article seems to be on counting up the number of people and projecting that. Mm-hmm. But when we think about prevalence as a proportion or percent of the population for something that's fairly common in older adults, like dementia, do you think that the prevalence as a percent is increasing in the United States?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. I should have actually thought about this more. Okay. So let me, I'm going to think aloud. It's going to be ugly. Um, Is the prevalence as a person. Okay. So do you mean like prevalence as a percentage of the entire population?
0: Um, As a percent of older adults, I would say, I mean, you do look at the percents by age category and they do seem to kind of go up across it, but it's kind of hard to unpack that a little bit. Right. Because I mean, it kind of implies like why I started asking myself, like, is it increasing or not? And why would it? I mean, are we diagnosing it more or recognizing it more?
2: Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. So this is, these are different things. Okay, so, um, all right. So first of all, uh, there's there's dementia in the abstract and then there's dementia in what we measure. So, so let's assume that anything that comes out of CHAP um, and is projected to the U.S. population or not, that we assume that because we are we have more control over the measurement process, that there's less of a measurement artifact, that we're picking up everyone who has it and and we're not identifying anyone who doesn't as not having it. Wait, did I say it? as having <laughs> the, the, the The detects are true, or have truly had dementia, and the people who, who we don't think have it actually don't. <laughs> um, so so the, the prevalence in the U.S. population is going to go up so long as there are major at-risk populations that are increasing. So um, so imagine sort of we have, a, we can take the baby boomers, for example. Uh, they are currently entering, they are entering their mid-70s on, on the high end. So the earliest baby boomers are entering, they're like 75-ish now. Um, and so, so I think, I'm, I'm just gonna punt here. I think this is going to keep going up. The prevalence is going to keep going up, but then what's going to happen is that there will be fewer and fewer baby boomers, and this is gonna take a while, um, by virtue of having died. And um, as the baby boomers um, die, it sounds horrible, um, the population of older adults is just going to be smaller. And so we will actually not have as many people or we won't have as high of a prevalence overall, but it really is going to depend on what the age composition is in the older adult population. It,
1: I, this might be wrong, but my, and I it also might be that I'm being messy with my terminology, but my understanding, I, I thought there was a paper from um, HRS uh, from our co-investigator, Dr. Langa, And then I think mm-hmm. also one from the f- um, Framingham study that suggested like the observed prevalence of dementia is in fact slightly lower than might have oh, been okay. anticipated, right, right. you know, a decade ago. Yeah. That's yeah. on an absolute number that's bigger. So it's more people, but the actual proportion percentage is a little bit lower than what yes. we were expecting. Right.
2: Okay. Right. Okay. So the assumptions in our production is that Anybody's risk of developing dementia in any given year is not going to change. So, if you are a 75 year old, um, say, black woman with a college education, we are going to assume over time that you are going to, that any woman who has those characteristics is going to have the same risk, no matter from, from year to year. So,
1: just to is, be clear, yeah. you mean a, a person with those characteristics in 2010 versus a person with those same characteristics in 2030, the yes. risk will be the same. That's yes, what you mean, exactly. Okay.
2: exactly. So, so we we would say so. For example, let's suppose the risk is say eight percent. We assume it's going to be eight percent no matter what, no matter what year it is. For a person, um, with and that will have been based on something from even earlier. So what the Framingham and HRS studies did is they actually directly observed um, people over time. So we're like projecting in the future based on uh, the present, um, making, assuming that the present is going to keep operating the same way in the future. What they did is, is they just said, we're going to just keep looking at people over time. And, um, and we're going to estimate prevalences in, uh, that are, I guess, contemporaneous to our data. So so then what they have suggested is that maybe this risk is going down. But as you say, the number of people is still going to go up because we have a larger, a growing number of people who are 65 plus. Yeah. So it's that is going to just drive the absolute numbers, even if the risks start going down. Um, we actually tried this in chat too. We tried looking at trends over time and we had to stop at Around 2010, because that's as far as our data could take us, um, we didn't see the same obvious pattern. Um, and I think that also begs the question about, well, first of all, if these, these I guess, improvements in, in risk or incidents are real, and they may be, and how universal they are. Um, most of the studies that look at these things involve like white people. Um, and that goes for studies in Europe as well. So oh, stuff is a little different in that in that regard. And we just did not really see that strong a pattern. Um, there, there may be something, but it's not screaming. <laughs> so uh, this is definitely a place where we could do a better job for sure.
0: So this might be a little more granular than we want to get into too much. But in your paper, you did mention several different sub-analyses that you did to sort of double check whether your prevalence estimates would change based on different parameters and assumptions. I'm just curious like overall did those analyses make you more or less confident in your in your estimates?
2: Well, overall they made they made me more confident. I I wasn't around for the first paper. Most of the team actually was. And um so it's a new kid on the block. Um and and the the view of the team overall is that these are the are they very educated guesses. They are they are quantitatively educated guesses. And so their view of what a precise estimate is, is very, I found it to be quite different than what a lot of the consuming public views. The consuming public sees 5.1 million, they're like, it must be 5.1 million. And, and having worked pretty in depth with, with this team, I can actually picture now how they see this. They see like a 5.1 million, Dot in space with all this cloud around it, <laughs> um, and so so anyway, I I think I, I would like to echo their view that they, they think this is pretty consistent. So so essentially, um, what happened is that we use the same source data essentially with some modifications. So um, the two thousand three paper involved chat data that ran from about nineteen ninety seven to I am going to forget this now. I it think it's 1997 to 2000. And um, so not a lot of data. And they also relied on the U.S. census from 2000 as well. So so again, this is pretty old data projecting the future. And the data on which the incidence and relative mortality was based was pretty limited. It was four years, essentially. So 10 years later, we have more data from CHAP. We also have a new census. Um, So that means that, say, a population projection for 2020 is not going to involve so much guesswork as it did in, say, the year 2000. And... It's kind of shocking then how similar these two estimates were, given that our estimates are based on other estimates. <laughs> um, so, so, where others may say, like, oh, it kind of dropped or it went up. In uh, fact, I'm like, oh, actually, they're pretty, they're pretty consistent, actually. So, so, to get into the sort of the weeds on this, the additional data that we had from CHAP. So we had an additional 10 years of data, pretty much. That changed the 2050 projection more than it did the 2010 estimate. It wasn't a lot, but it changed a little bit. Um, Updates to the data we had on the United States population, um, those changed the 2010 and 2050 estimates a little bit. They changed down. uh, Actually, the education data shifted those estimates downward a little bit, which suggests to me that, in fact, maybe the changes in the census data such as more people had more education. Um, That's what I would expect with that. And then the biggest change actually resulted in an upward bump to the 2050 projection. And that was from just overall changes to the population itself. And and, um, I'm not sure what specific changes there were in that projection, but that um, is not incredibly surprising. Again, um, projecting out to 2050, (laughs) it is really shocking how similar these are.
1: So we've uh, been talking about the strengths of your great paper and the uh, 2,400 citations suggest that there are lots of strengths. If if you had to say uh, what, what you thought some of the main limitations were, what what would you say?
2: Yeah, um, I like to uh, wear the limitations of my papers on my sleeve. <laughs> um, I, and mainly, I, I feel like these are things we should talk about um, openly because we should be promoting sort of advances in science and understanding and so on. So I'm just going to go back to one of the sort of um, hallmarks of this study, which is that it was really based in estimating incidence and relative mortality in groups defined by four characteristics, age, sex, race, and education level. these estimates did not account for anything else in the population that might affect incidence or mortality. I mean, age is a big player. It is pretty much the player. Um, you know, we think about some of these um, autosomal dominant um genetic variants. Sure, they, they have a very strong effect on risk, but they're so rare that they would make very little difference in this kind of estimate. So what kind of other factors might we be interested in? Um, as I was thinking through this and I'm thinking, well, okay, let's take physical activity as an example. So physical activity does seem to affect mortality risk. It, it probably reduces it. And it probably reduces dementia risk, we think. So, so long as the physical activity patterns in CHAP are like those in the United States, and if they stay the same over time, then probably this very simple approach that we took is not a problem. But if CHAP is really different from the population at large, our estimates could be way off. Um, And so related to that, our estimates accounted for the growing number of black older adults in the United States. I mean, um, so many of our participants were black, Um, but we didn't account for the emerging trend in the older adult population that entails the growth in the number of people who are Latinx or Hispanic, uh, people who are Asian, or some combination of ethnicity and race. And these, these populations are growing quite rapidly. And recent studies do suggest that the risks in these groups are different than the risks of those who are white or black. And even within subgroups of these populations, we see differences in risks. So we did foresee this limitation, but we couldn't really do anything about it. We just, There were very, very few Hispanic people in CHAP. Um, and again, I think maybe... I view that as a weakness, but also as a message as to where this, this, this estimate should go in the future and, and how maybe these studies should be conducted in the future. So we did foresee that limitation of what we didn't anticipate. And I don't know, I don't know yet how big a limitation this is, but we didn't anticipate the emergence of COVID-19, a global pandemic that has shortened the lives of more than half a million older adults and may have placed many others at unknown neurologic risk. We don't have a firm grasp yet on how COVID nineteen has altered that landscape. Um, part of me thinks it's like it's going to be a blip, but I don't know. I think the jury's out, and um, so hopefully that'll be something that also gets absorbed into future
1: research.
0: That is a great overview of the study, and and I learned a lot about kind of some of your thoughts, like into the paper that went into some of the decisions that you made. So just to kind of come full circle. I'm curious if we could kind of start to wrap things up by just talking a little bit about what we think as several researchers here on the line, why, what drives some articles to be more highly cited than others? Because I think this is, this is an important thing when we, when we write and, and perform analyses that we're doing things that have value to other researchers and that can have that kind of impact.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think, I think this idea that pavers um, kind of take on a certain structure and, and substructures. Uh, we, we have the intro. The methods, the results, and the the discussion, but even within the intro, usually it's like, what is what is the problem that I'm addressing, or, or yeah, essentially, what is this thing and why is it important and why should we care? Um, and in a grant, is even more, it's even more of a marketing statement. It's like this is a terrible, terrible problem, and you must give me money to study it. And um, so I think. There's, there's a kind of paper that forms the foundation of numerous papers that, that certainly leads to higher citations. Um, other kinds of papers that make, well, yeah, you know, I'm thinking like am not now trying to think of some other highly cited papers. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was also involved with um, a group also at my institution, uh, my current institution, BU School of Public Health, and the BU Medical Center, um, and this is a group that studies uh, chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathy, and uh, they developed some diagnostic criteria. And um, I am part of that paper. I'm like way in the middle, so I don't claim to speak as much in depth about it as this one. Um, but that has received a lot of citations too. And and but we can think about this in the same way. This has become the sort of um, main ingredient to a lot of papers that have followed. If you're going to study C- CTE or sports injuries involving head trauma, you're probably going to cite this thing, especially if you're using diagnostic criteria that are now widely accepted. Um, yeah, so so kind of back to one of your observations, you said, you know, it's these often feel like the boring parts. Like These are boring elements of research. It's a- <laughs> We didn't like discover something, (laughs) but in fact, we kind of did. We kind of discovered how many people have dementia and, and, um, I'm going to go on a slight tangent here. Um, uh, the PI of the study again, Dr. Dennis Evans, uh, was one of the first people to conduct a major epidemiologic survey of dementia in the population. And this was conducted in East Boston. And, um, at the time, um, the knowledge that who develops dementia and how common it is was pretty limited, and one of the assumptions that uh, one of my um, dear mentors has shared with me was that for a while, some people thought that higher education was associated with higher risk because guess who is coming to the clinic? Mm. And so, um, so what Dr. Evans and his colleagues discovered when they went door to door in East Boston. Is they discovered more people had dementia than we ever thought possible. This was a really, really big deal. And he later told me he said, and it, we were actually going to be, I think it was on sixty minutes. And then the Berlin Wall fell, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I um. Anyway, I just wanted to share that little tidbit.
1: <laughs> like for biomedical papers, at least, there's a standard sort of three paragraph introduction. And the first Mm -hmm. paragraph is always like the problem. And especially if you're going for like a general medical journal, you're trying Mm -hmm. to convince, you know, cardiologists or surgeons or whoever, what the problem is and the way you do it is with numbers. And so this is like, literally, this is like the first sentence of the first paragraph of, of the paper. And I also wonder too, a little bit, about the timing. So you mentioned in your introduction, which I'll note is also amazing. It's a one paragraph introduction in this Love paper, it. which Love is so amazing. Um, but you referenced the you know National Alzheimer's Plan in the US. And so now there's been like this sort of... Tw- 10 what 10 year period of kind of sustained investment and attention Mm -hmm. with i think a lot maybe more people coming into this research space so then you all were like oh look here's this paper that all of you new people coming in can cite in your grants and papers and projects that you're working on um so i it seems like the 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 timing for this particular analysis was also just kind of perfect given that the national interest at the point
2: yeah uh well, historically, there wasn't a lot of funding put behind Alzheimer's research. It was right. it was a pretty, pretty dark place to be, uh, or at least I would say inconsistent. Um, there would be great periods followed by pretty dry periods. Mm-hmm. And it is these statistics, and again, this is sort of like through many layers of translation that end up on the desks of, say... Senatorial aides, or something, or this is, i mean, these are lobbying numbers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we use it to justify the importance of our research, but it's also used to justify why this research should be funded, why the fund should be allocated, mm-hmm. um, and thus, over the past few years, we've never seen anything like this in terms of funding that is available uh, to study Alzheimer's dementia.
0: It's so good that you focused on prevalent cases, though. I mean, my questions about the proportion were one thing, but that's what you need when you think about resource allocation for something like mm-hmm. this. It's exactly what everybody needs. And that's, I think, why so many people cite this is the, the, the sheer number of people we have to consider as we move, move forward as a society. You know, something else I'll just kind of throw out there in terms of citable papers is that I think that you do a really nice job of minimizing jargon and presenting tables and figures. I feel like I feel like epidemiologists have a great appreciation for clarity and simplicity and their tables and figure design. And I, and I feel like it kind of shines through in articles like this. Yeah, there's a fair number of methods that once you start reading the message, you say, oh, there's a lot of detail in some of the inputs and outputs and everything. But but the presentation results are something that everybody can wrap their head around and everybody can get and everybody can make sense of. And I really appreciate that about it.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Um, I I hope that, that well, everything <laughs> was most, most of the work that, that um, I'm involved in, or at least I'm in charge of. <laughs> Um, is useful. I mean, and, and useful is ultimately the, the goal here. Even though the cynical side of me says, "Oh, just throw out any garbage and just get your citation number up, or uh, get get you know add a page to your CV and and get promoted or whatever." But but I think the satisfaction of being in this field, um, being a scientist in general, is knowing that people are reading and using your work. And, and even building, well, and especially building off of it and improving it. I'm all for that.
0: Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. I doubt you're keeping track, but Donovan and I hope to add a few more sites to your tally with the papers that we have under review. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud as well as directly from us at capra.med.umish.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us and we'll be back soon.